this podcast we will remember Haiti in their voice what are we supposed to be remembering and why Haiti in their voices to be able to hear voices of real people in Haiti but I thought they spoke another language well let's find out This is a Creole phrase meaning we will remember. Nous comptons well. We're happy you've tuned in to the We Will Remember Haiti in their voice podcast or in Creole. Na songe, na what do the Haitian people think about their situation, their lives, their dreams, their culture, their religion, both personally and collectively? How do they see the world? That's what we'll be learning about as we listen to the voices of the people on the street. Or in the countryside or wherever they are in the world. It will be recorded by our colleagues, Rocky, Naji, and Alma, who are co-founders of the Nassonge Vet, or in English, We Will Remember Green, a more recent branch to the foundation's work. English voiceovers will be done by podcast co-host Carla and Ron Blunchley. That's us. Who have lived in Haiti for 38 years, and as a result, uh, we feel we have a better than average understanding of the people, their culture, and their politics. Because of the current extreme insecurity, economic, and humanitarian crises, the Nassonger Foundation, which is based in Haiti, has decided to extend its work now in a digital and audio format, hoping the same work of transformation can come through these interesting and perhaps sometimes shocking revelations from the extraordinary citizens of Haiti. Haiti, as one tradition explains, the Taino name for the land, Aiti, means the land that enables or forces one to rise to one's higher self. These are just the authentic opinions of the everyday person in Haiti, not necessarily reflecting the opinions of the Nassonge Foundation. So let's hear in their voices, Nassonge. Welcome to this very special edition in honor of the memory of this auspicious weekend of the 17th, 
18th and 19th of November, 1803, when the last battle for independence at Vertier happened on the 18th, and then the signing of surrender on the 19th by the French army. We at the Nassongi Foundation believe in remembering the global importance of Haiti's victory, which rang the death tolls for slavery all over the whole world. It was through the chilling but sacrificial bravery of over half a million African-born people, along with the freed blacks, the mulattoes, and all those of mixed race, breaking the chains that had been extracting their blood for more than 300 years, furnishing Europe with its bittersweet riches of sugar and other whip-inspired products such as coffee and indigo. This was the time and their moment for their phenomenal courage and determination to set themselves free, as well as for all enslaved people of the world, which necessarily included American enslaved people, and why it is that the U.S. cut off relations with Haiti after this historical turn of events. This was the decisive Battle of Vertier, November 18, 1803, that caused the largest and strongest military might of the European world, the French Napoleonic Army, to surrender to the greatest Haitian revolutionary army against all odds that brought the French to their knees and to a humiliation that they would never forget, although they try and wipe it out of their history books still. So you may have heard of Napoleon, but did your history books ever talk about Jean-Jacques Dessalines or Toussaint Louverture, those who designed, strategized, and became the most successful military commanders in the struggle against Napoleonic France? If you are an American, you might want to know that because of the exceptional bravery by the Haitian people, Napoleon made the largest land sale to the U.S., the Louisiana Purchase, which is the whole middle section of the United States that united both coasts and thus created a whole landmass into one nation by providing 828,000 square miles of some of the most fertile lands yet still inhabited by native peoples. This history deserves our respect and is worth a deeper dive into this important history that has made the United States what it is today due to the spilling of Haitian blood for their freedom. During this story, you'll hear about the French commander of Napoleon's army, General Rochambeau, who served as an aide to his father, who was a hero of the American War of Independence, thus learning military strategy in that way. He succeeded to become the general of the French army in Haiti after the death of General Leclerc, Napoleon's brother-in-law, and so became known for the Rochambeau genocide, as his thirst for the extinction of slave rebels gave way to some of the greatest cruelty of this revolution. Convinced that this slave rebellion could only be resolved by mass murder, Rochambeau undertook to massacre much of the non-white civilian and military population. Under his direction, the French imported hundreds of attack dogs from Cuba, which were used both in counterinsurgency operations and in grotesque public spectacles in which unfortunate prisoners were eaten alive. 
During his time in Haiti, Rochambeau waged a war of extermination, massacring thousands of blacks of all ages and genders. In 1803, he developed the world's first gas chambers, where he used a rudimentary method of filling ships' cargo holds with sulfur dioxide in order to suffocate black prisoners of war. It's hard to estimate the number of men, women, and children killed by Rochambeau's forces. His troops slaughtered thousands of people, mostly of African descent, while privation and disease carried off many more. The Rochambeau genocide remains synonymous with the worst excesses of colonial war in Haiti. Needless to say that although there is much documented about this history, it is really rarely studied and or appreciated. We encourage you to use the historical map that is in the show notes and follow up on some of these details to really comprehend our connection to this extraordinary event in human history. We also want to thank once again historian and anthropologist Eddie Lubin for his beautiful rendition of this important story from a Haitian perspective, which isn't often heard. Na songe. J'aime la, j'aime la, j'aime la m'a gardé yo, dans bala wedo, aida wedo, j'aime la pour m'a gardé. J'aime la, j'aime la, j'aime la pour m'a gardé. Haïtien, gardez bien après qui ça yo fait nous là. J'aime la, j'aime la, j'aime la pour m'a gardé yo, dans bala wedo, aida wedo, j'aime la. Well, my friends, in order to understand the importance of this victory, the victory of the Haitian people that they gained at the Battle of Vettiers, it was the last desperate attempt by the French colonial army. But you should know that the first council of France, Napoleon Bonaparte, personally supervised the army he would send to crush the slave rebellion that rose up against the slave system. He guaranteed the success of this military expedition personally by naming General Leclerc, the husband of his sister, to be the commander of this expedition force, among which were some well-experienced generals and officers with many victories on the battlefields of Europe, many elite troops who participated in the campaigns of Egypt and Italy. Those in the force who were part of this expedition had squads who had many military ships that came from all over. Seventy warships, frigates, Flutes, corvettes, 58,540 men, soldiers, 13 divisional generals, 27 brigade commanders, and other high-ranking officers. This was the army that was defeated by the Haitian people after the Battle of Vettiers. <laughs> Bataille Vettière. 
papa pour you vie coyou pour papa l'appelle The Battle of Vetsier ought to be called, rather, the general attack against the defenses of the city of Cape Haitian. It was the most violent battle of the whole War of Independence. It was this last battle which would turn upside down the domination of three centuries of bone-crushing brutality in the hell of slavery. When Dessalines got to Montrouge, the 15th of November, 1803, he organized his war offices in Vaudreuil in the Lenorme Plantation. The enemy decided to play its last card because everywhere things were falling apart for them. There was no way they could get reinforcements and they couldn't get more provisions either. All roads were closed to them. Additionally, the British were circling in the ocean near Cape Haitian. An army without any communication or grounding is in big trouble. Rochambeau saw that, but was confident in the defense system for the city. And he also thought he could hold on until the French Marines would somehow arrive slipping through the British flotilla into Cape Haitian. And truly, the city's defenses were well organized. There was a wall of fortification that surrounded the city. A quick look at the map will show you this. If you start in the west, with the defenses around La Pitance, there are eight cannons there. They blocked the road from the west and covered the plains as well. Plus, in the north, there were circular enforcements, batteries of death they called Grigri, the battery called Mayi today, and the battery of St. Joseph and Fort Picolet. They all controlled the entrance to the port and the passageway to the harbor. Since it was worse out in the ocean, where big British ships were circling around, Fort Picolet, if needed, could turn their cannons around toward the west to defend the city of Cape Haitian. Additionally, to the south, about 75 meters, the French hospital that was there had three batteries that were watching over the mountains. They were watching the main roads, and if needed, they could fire on Upper Cape Haitian. That was the battery of Monet in the southeast direction, in a fortification called Yonredan, which was at the Barrier Boute entrance to the city. There were two cannons that covered the road into Cape. On the western side at the mountaintop, Mount Vigie, 
San Martin was watching over the both sides of the mountains of Cape Haitian, in front and behind. But they're simply a lookout position only. At 4,500 meters, VG on Vincent the same mountain, Fort Pierre Michel dominated the main road, the height of the outskirts of Cape Haitian. A little to the west, that's where we find Blocas Breda. It had one cannon. It was this fort that was closer to the road that led to the indigenous army. A little behind that, Fort Charrier was dominating the road. There were no cannons there. So in the end, the fortifications of Fort Vettier were the strongest in the defense system of the city for several reasons. It wasn't far from the road. It had a different orientation than the other forts. And it also had many cannons as well. And what's more, a wall of fortification like this could not be crossed over easily if you didn't have the means to do so. Dessalines inspected his troops and felt the time had come. He wouldn't let his soldiers' blood cool down. It's true they were hungry. It's true they had torn clothing on them. And since Port-au-Prince, it was just a little cornmeal or a little roasted sweet potato is all they had to eat. That didn't matter. They wanted freedom. So much so that they were waiting for this last battle to be finished with slavery entirely. Dessalines decided he was going to attack Cape Haitian as the situation was. What troops did he have then? He had the 3rd, the 11th, 20th regiments, with the 4th battalion under authority of Gabard. He had the 10th regiment and the 3rd battalion and 4th regiment. There was the elite youth from Port-au-Prince under the command of Charles-Jean-Baptiste Philippe He had the 6th Regiment under the command of Clairvaux, the oldest of the generals. He had the 1st and 12th Regiment under the command of Charles-Christophe and Romain. He had the 9th Regiment under the command of Capois-Lamont. And this brigade had uniforms. This troop was able to take over a French army warehouse on the island of Tortuga. The 21st, 22nd, and 24th Regiment were under the command of Khan. They also had uniforms they had gotten from Kai. The 14th, 17th Regiment, under the command of Verne, they also had the dragoons of the Artibonite, under the command of Colonel Charlotin Marcateau, with his assistant, chief of the squad, Paul Pont and Bastien. They made up the reservists, 27,000 men in total. Since Port-au-Prince had fallen under the control of the indigenous troops, they had no problems for ammunition. So the final objective was to take control of Cape Haitian. The road they had to take with all the equipment was full of fortifications that surrounded it. Fort Pierre-Michel, 
Breda, Vertier, on the other side, Vigy, Saint-Martin, Batrimone, and Fort Picolet protected the city from the north and the northwest. They could direct their cannons toward the city if the enemy entered there. And the forts of La Pitance could cover the plains. The troops there, if they found contact with the indigenous troops, they could attack from the side. Dessalines decided to attack with four columns. The first would be under the command of Clairvaux. He would make the largest attack at the Barrier Boutet entrance to the city. He would use the main road into the city of Cape. The second column would be under the command of... Mm, he would go through Bandenor on the road of Modestin and the Ravine Gorge La Providence to take Vigy in the morning. If he could get the battery of the Mornay that would allow him to pound Cape with cannonballs, the third column will be under the command of Romain. He will go all the way to Picole, and the fourth column will hide at La Pitance. The reservists will stay in the outskirts in case they need them at a particular point, if they are in difficulty. So in this plan of attack, what do we see? We see that the passageways are blocked at certain key points, at Breda, Pierre-Michel, Vettier. All these points must fall. At the same time, they made certain side maneuvers with objectives, with targets other than the forts to create what is called a diversion tactic to distract the enemy, where they were going to make their attack so that the enemy would be obliged to keep their soldiers in place, therefore weakening their defense capacity, so they wouldn't be concentrating on one point. So first of all, Dessalines would send Christophe and Romain. They both had a long road to go through terrible road conditions. They were forced with cannons up steep hills and mountain peaks, but they had to arrive at the time that they had agreed upon with Dessalines. So Dessalines would wait for their signal till they would be in their position before he would send Clairvaux with his column and with what precautions, because whether it was Vigy or the battlegrounds of Mornay, their cannons were aimed at the road. So before the main battle could begin, it would be logical for those points of defense to be destroyed to impede their progress on the road that led to Cape. And also, the two sides they would decide to attack first would, like it or not, result in the forces in Cape going to the northwest at the points they attacked. November 17, 1803, Christophe sent word he had arrived in position. He had taken Vigy and the battlegrounds of Mornay. Romain was in front to attack Fort Picolet. Carnes sent a clear message 
The French army force at Latitance were surrounded. They tried to escape, but to no avail. Dessalines decided to inspect the area of Breda personally, because Breda was the first obstacle to destroy. They must pound it with cannonballs, so therefore he went to inspect around the fort to find its weaknesses. He came so close to the fort that the French started shooting at him. He fell back without being wounded. After that, he went back to his headquarters. There he decided he would shoot at Breda to cover his advancing column. During the night of the 17th to the morning of the 18th of November, Clairvaux had them put a battery of cannons in front of Breda at a distance of 500 meters. He had a breaker, a type of short cannon of six inches, one four-inch piece and one eight-inch piece. Dessalines called General Do and Gaba to his headquarters. He gave them the command of the reserves, which had the 10th, 11th, and 20th regiment, and three battalions. The 4th Half Brigade, reinforced with the Artibonite Dragoons, under the command of Mark Arthur. November 10th, 1803, the cannons began to bombard Breda and all the French forts responded. Dessalines was commanding these operations. Higher up the road in the direction of the Barrier Boutet entrance to the city, Capois was out in front with the 9th Half Brigade. The forts fired more. The column was in danger. Breda, Pierre-Michel and Vettier are bombarding Dessalines analyzed the situation in spite of the diversion by Christophe and Romain. The road was still closed. Three points blocked the way. They had to neutralize them, or if not, there would be no way in. So now, Dessalines had to change the plan in the face of this problem. Vettier remained a strong fort and was the most dangerous. It was close to the road, and it had many cannons, so it was all this that made it become a key point. This point of resistance, this point of fortifications, had a very strong system of defense. It had barricades which had to be neutralized with cannons. But the only place they could put the cannons to shoot at Vertier was at Charrier to the south. They had to be able to take it over. Fortunately, their luck was that there weren't any French defending it. But to be able to get to Charrier, they had to divert Vettier because all the columns that were trying to get to Charrier, Vettier could shoot at them with the cannons on its sides. And two, Dessalines thought they had to get around Breda in order to get their cannons and go out on the road into the mountains. This operation was in order to take the pressure off Clairvaux's column. It was an intelligent maneuver. And don't forget that the indigenous generals got their rank from their battles against the English and the Spanish. 
These guys knew what they were doing. So Dessalines and Clairvaux got around Breda and had Capois march toward Vettier. Capois was marching to Vettier with Venet that had under their command the 9th, 17th, 14th Division. When they arrived in front of Vettier, a total bombardment of cannonballs made them fall back, and they fell back to the main road. Dessalines understood that he had to keep Vettier under siege. He quickly sent his reserves under the command of Gabar to reinforce Capois. They had to push them back while Capois reassembled his soldiers. And he returned again to attacking Vettier. And this is where history tells of his courage. Dessalines decided he would take over Charrier with a battery of cannons in order to bombard Vettier. Capois would remain at the foot of the fort to continue the siege on the French. The reserves under the order of Gabar and Jean-Philippe Do would take over Charrier. This is the second time they would use the reservists. These tactics show us clearly that Dessalines had technical conventional knowledge of wartime tactics, and so Vettier was under siege by cannon. The French General Rochambeau decided to put a 16-cannon battery in the plains of Champagne and keep on shooting on Charrier. Charrier successfully destroyed this big cannon. The French began to understand their position at Charrier was dangerous for them. And that's why they concentrated all their cannons on it. Also, the houses in Charrier were being destroyed and the indigenous soldiers wouldn't have a place to hide. Clairvaux decided with his soldiers to build a wall of earth, a parapet in military terms, to protect them. Also, as they were able to complete this, Charrier was able to continue bombarding Berthier. A part of the fort gave way. Under this siege, the French abandoned the fort with two cannons to make a counterattack in order to attack Capua from the side and to take Charrier. General Jean-Philippe 
Philippe Dos sped down the hill of Charrier to meet them. But a French battalion pushed him back. Dessalines, the same tactic, he called on Paul Point, who commanded the squadron of reserve cavalry, and said to him, I don't want to see any French outside the fort. When the horns began to blow, Paul Point charged the French. They resisted the attack. They put a first line of soldiers kneeling on the ground and two other lines, and they shot at Paul Point and his troops. Then they fired the two cannons, which killed a lot of indigenous soldiers. So we have to admit that the French army was fighting with courage too. Rochambeau, as a good tactician, understood very well all that was happening. It was as though a game of chess was being played between him and Dessalines. This is where the first weakness showed, and this is where his adversary was going to hit and beat him to the ground. Forgetting that he had been under the command of the French, which gave him the tactics to understand their techniques, Dessalines put a lot of soldiers out in the bushes, well hidden, even in the trees, hiding in the tall grass, lying flat on the ground. They weren't to participate in the action. Rather, they were the eyes and ears of the great general. As well, Dessalines created a line of networks with fast-running soldiers who could run very fast. Their mission was to bring bring what they saw quickly to the high command. Rochambeau understood very clearly his coffee was being strained with the ground. The siege by the indigenous army was too much for them. Charrier was giving them too many problems, and everything they fired fell inside Vertier. The only means that remained was to try something with Charrier. The only thing left of their troops was the high guard. So he decided to try and go with this high guard to see if they could take back Charrier. They wanted to go from behind the small mountain to arrive behind Charrier on the western side. But before they could even depart, Dessalines' special spy service brought news to Clairvaux. A trap was organized. They quickly sent a company to hide in the weeds very close on the west side of Charrier to wait for the trap. As soon as the French arrived, they were met with lead. The French soldiers saw it and ran without looking back. At five in the afternoon, Fort Breda was surrounded. For some hours already, Fort Pierre-Michel hadn't shot anything. Were they out of ammunition? 
Christoph had not stopped pounding the city of Cape at all. At any time, he could descend on the city. Romain at Picolet and Lapitance hadn't done anything since the beginning of the battle. They had it under their control. Vietier couldn't withstand anymore. The more soldiers of the indigenous army fell, the more that died, the more they came on. Rochambeau couldn't see, but he knew they had to leave the fort and get inside the city. And perhaps they might be able to negotiate with the British. And if that doesn't work, they would have to capitulate before the indigenous army entered the city. And Rochambeau knew he had to try and hold on till nightfall so that in the night they could sneak out of the fort like cats. As the great tactician he was, Dessalines was sent to tell Rochambeau any negotiations he wants to make with the British didn't matter to him. So he sent a message that said to Rochambeau that if within 24 hours they don't come to an agreement, they would start again their military operations. At 5 p.m. November 19th, 1803, the adjunct French commander Duvevier presented before the indigenous army to negotiate the surrender of Cape Haitian. <laughs> Mon papa, yo, c'est papillon, y'a de magie à l'entour Haïti, oh, mi ton pays a pas bouillou, mi ton pays a pas bouillou, papa, faut yo, veye, faut yo, pou pa prendre l'ampel, le diabla. Here is the text to the surrender of the city of Cape Haitian by the French Napoleonic Army. Today, the 19th of November, 1803, adjunct commander Duvervier dictates, we will not touch the ammunition to make war that is in the depot of the French army. We will not sabotage any weapon. They will remain as they are. Article 3. The day we decide all army ships and other ships necessary will leave freely with soldiers and inhabitants. Article 4. Military officers and civilians, troops in the barracks and Cape, will be able to leave with military honor and with the weapons and equipment of their regiment. Article 5. The sick and wounded who cannot leave 
will be cared for in the hospital until they are healed. Dessalines guarantees the people who want to stay in the country. And he asks to free everyone in the prison, whatever color they are. Or to force them to embark with the French army if they don't want to. Article 7. Soldiers of each side will hold their positions where they are until the days are established, until the French have left. Article 8. Rochambeau guarantees to give the indigenous army adjutant commander Urban Devoe. Dessalines will send to him an officer of the same grade. We have made this document in two copies in good faith in the general headquarters. Oh, Ducap, day and month we have cited already. Dessalines signed on one side, Duverrier signed on the other side. Dessalines signed bon, Duverrier signed bon. C'était Bataille Vétière qui baille victoire l'armée indigène sous l'armée française.